So did any of you guys like uh, playing hide and seek as a kid? Oh. My two kids used to love it, but you know, of course, they're, they're way too grown up and mature for that now. But you know, a lot of people think that God still likes to play hide and seek though. And they'll ask things like, why isn't God more obvious? Why is God silent when prayers seem to go unanswered? When suffering or tragedy strikes, why would God allow something like that to happen? Why does someone we love have to get sick and die? Or, or worse yet, uh, get really sick and not die, but spend months and months in physical or mental agony? Uh, or maybe the question comes in the form of asking, you know, when we know that there are possibly millions and millions of people who don't know about God, why doesn't he just peel back the clouds and show himself and thunder down from heaven, here I am. And all of these questions get at the same idea, uh, what theologians have called the seeming hiddenness of God, uh, and also at humanity's insistence on ever more miraculous signs to satisfy our stubborn rebellious hearts. Even when we witness our Lord's abundance and grace and mercy and provision surrounding us every day. And that's actually the topic, uh, and that's our theme today from the text, as we continue our look at the Gospel of Mark um, and a second mass feeding on Jesus' part, albeit on a little bit of a smaller scale. Uh, because today he only feeds 4,000. So that, you know, that, that may be a little easier, I'm not sure. But we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading in the first 13 verses. So Mark 8 chapter, first 13 verses. This is the word of the true and living God. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he, being Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they may faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can we feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? I guess they forgot what happened. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into a boat and went with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? But truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray. God, Father, how quickly we forget your love and your mercy and your miracles. Some little dark cloud lies through our lives, Father. We forget uh, your glorious presence all around us. And so, Father, we ask that you would 
uh, open our hearts and minds today by the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal not only uh, our blindness, but to show us, Lord, all the just miraculous ways that you have been leading and moving, not just this church, but us as individuals. Uh, and Father, uh, speak to us today by your Spirit, because we want to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So, by this time in Mark's Gospel and in Jesus' ministry, his preaching and his miracles were extremely well known. Right? Remember, that's what had attracted the attention of the religious leaders in the first place. And so, uh, and so far, those religious leaders didn't really much like what they heard or saw. Because they were beginning to realize that if Jesus actually was the Messiah, uh, he wasn't exactly all that they had hoped for. You see, they wanted a Savior who would free them from the Romans. And who would restore their nation's former place of prominence on the world stage. Uh, and who would make them uh, personally wealthy and perpetually happy and, and always physically well. But Jesus makes it clear that his primary mission wasn't to do any of that. Not to do anything that they expected. But was instead to go to the cross. And so, humanly speaking, the scribes and Pharisees are kind of left with more questions than answers, weren't they? Particularly, the question for them is, if God is so good, how come things don't seem to be going our way? If God's good, why aren't things going our way? But, you know, if we're honest, I'm sure we won't felt like that a time or two, haven't we? And so today's text, then, is a great lesson for us because it deals with something that every thinking person has at some time raised in their mind. And that's the question of, where is God in the midst of my personal disappointment? Where is God in the midst of my deep heart? Where is God in the midst of my tragedy? Where is he on days that just don't make sense? The famous uh, British atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked uh, what he would say if after his death it turned out that he was wrong and there actually was a God and he, he suddenly encountered God face to face, what he would say. And Russell said, I would say, God, you never gave sufficient evidence for me to believe in. Now, we may not share Russell's militant atheism, but I think all of us, if we're honest, would love to see God part the heavens and look down from time to time, wouldn't we? And we may have all at least at times had the thought, God, if you're there, how about sending me a sign? But make something happen. Show me a miracle. But the reality is that God in his sovereignty is not often revealed in the flashy or the dramatic, but rather much more often in that still, small voice. A voice that is, is barely audible except for the most patient and still souls. A voice heard when God's people, broken and human as we are, seeks through the power of the Holy Spirit to see God and to hear God and to find God so beautifully obvious in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And for you and I, that's a joy and a comfort and a confirmation of our faith, but for those outside of Christ, those kind of things, miracles and things like that, never seem to be enough. They're also not enough for, uh, for what Brother Fred back there calls pew potatoes. Right? Brother Fred called pew potatoes, meaning fair-weather Christians and false converts. Right? Those folks who may have the outward appearance of godliness, but inwardly they deny its power. Right? Those, those folks who look religious on the outside, but in their hearts, they're far from God. And that sounds really very reminiscent of this band of Pharisees who were always hounding Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> Especially the ones who showed up 
after his feeding of the 4,000, which was an incredible miracle. That was undeniable proof of God's presence, and yet these self-proclaimed holy men were arrogant enough to still demand that Jesus produce a sign from heaven. Just as we read, the Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation, and he left them, and got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Because you see, the Pharisees had just come to argue. Right? These supposed shepherds and pastors of the people, these blind guides, who always wanted to be right, even when they were wrong. And we all know people like that, right? And religious people, right? Quote unquote religious people. Have you ever noticed how those kinds of religious people just love to argue? The people who, who maybe read their Bibles but they have no intention of loving others or really following Jesus or helping those in need, they just come around to hear themselves talk and to debate. And to argue. And quite honestly, they can be some of the most draining people in the world. Mean spirited, ill tempered, filled with lots of head knowledge about God, but zero heart change from Him. Well, that's what Jesus is dealing with in these attacks from the Pharisees. And as we've seen, they've been escalating, right? From, from kind of indirect assaults originally until now, they've reached the point of face to face confrontation. And they've challenged Him on everything from healing on the Sabbath, and on forgiving sins, and on picking grain with his disciples, and on and on. And now, as I said, they come straight to his face and argue, and demand for a sign from heaven. And, and, and the Pharisees didn't, didn't want another healing, or another exorcism, or another mass feeding, but a bona fide sign from heaven. Right? An apocalyptic manifestation that would prove beyond all doubt that Jesus had God's approval. Think of the arrogance, right? The Pharisees wanted God the Father Almighty to personally and dramatically defend Jesus' claims before they accepted him. I mean, talk about arrogant pupers. Now, now, just to be clear, don't disagree. There's nothing wrong with wanting to see God show up in mighty ways. Right? We pray for that all the time, don't we? Pray that God would work mightily. But it was the Pharisees' motives that were way off. Because there's a big difference, church, between wanting to see God do something amazing in someone's life or something amazing for the advancement of the kingdom and simply wanting God to do something just to satisfy our curiosity or in response to our demand for some kind of supernatural heavenly sign word. So because of that, the text that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given. And then I think about it, Jesus had already filled the land with undeniable proof that he was the Messiah that would come to Israel, right? He was sent by the Father, just as the prophets have predicted, and doing miracles that only the Messiah could do. And so when the leaders demand a sign, what they implied was the miracles already performed were insufficient. They weren't good enough for them. So, so no wonder Jesus sighed like that. And, and if you really think about Israel's history, though, this type of feeling from Jesus parallels God the Father's attitude toward the Israelites in the Exodus when Moses was up on Mount Sinai. Remember in Exodus chapter 32, the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become broken. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. 
and bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Now remember, those people had seen God deliver them from Egypt with great and mighty power. They had seen God part the Red Sea so they could walk across on priority. They had seen God protect them in the desert. They had seen God visibly present with a pillar of smoke and, and a column of fire, and still they doubted him and somehow missed God's obvious presence right in front of them. Still they tested God. And I call them stiff-necked people. And in the same way, the religious leaders were testing Jesus, and so Jesus was angry, and he was deeply agitated, and said plainly, the kind of sign they wanted, I wasn't going to be given. Because Jesus' concern was and is only the good news of the gospel. And he does miracles when, where, and how he determines, but only if they advance the kingdom, and never just to put on a show. Because the truth is that even if he did, even, even sporadic supernatural demonstrations by God would never satisfy sinful humanity's insistence that our Lord be constantly accountable to us for his actions. As if we have some kind of inherent right uh, for God to justify himself to us. Or demand that he give just one more incontrovertible miracle that would dispel every other doubt we have in every other circumstance. Well, we know that's not true. Because in reality, all it is is an arrogant intellectual, hard-hearted smokescreen to hide behind because the solution has to go deeper in us than we usually care to look. And it's more often found in what we consider ordinary and often take for granted, kind of like spending time on that work. English spiritual writer Anthony Bloom underscored this uh, ailment of ours pretty well when he wrote, we complain that God does not make himself present to us for a few minutes we reserve for but what about the 23 and a half other hours during which God may be knocking at our door? And we answer, I'm busy now. Or, sorry Lord, maybe later. Or when we do not answer at all because we don't even hear the knock at the door of our mind, our conscience, our heart, and our life. And so because of that, we have a situation in which we have no right to complain of the absence of God because he says we are a great deal more absent we are a great deal more absent than God ever is. So the church, if you ever if you ever feel as if God is playing hide and seek with you, if you ever feel you really need a sign, if you ever want Jesus to prove it, then at least take the first step of getting into the work of At least go that far. And allow him to prove himself to you how he transforms you. And by renewing your mind and renewing your spirit with the scriptures. Don't, don't come to him demanding for him to prove himself. Just come humble. But yet come with joyful anticipation of what he's got in store for you and not always looking for something more. So trust him. Trust him. In his word. And in his means of grace at this table. And in the, the movement of the Holy Spirit. And don't be like those folks who came to argue with Jesus. Those, those people who were only looking for God to be something that they could control. Put in a box or, or try to manipulate uh, or try to fully explain, because that's a fallacy born out of our addiction to the external, and to our willful desire to have what we want when we want. But brothers and sisters, God has proved himself over and over.
even though he was certainly under no obligation to do it. And hey, the supernatural was possible. Miracles happen. It happens. But you know, all by itself, miracles like that don't lead to the greatest miracle of all, which is the miracle of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Based not on his intervention in every single circumstance that he allows to come into our lives, but on our submission to the cross and our submission to him. Hymn writer Louisa Steed in 1882 wrote these lines you may recognize. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise and know thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I proved him were and were. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him. Not, not to trust in the results of any kind of good works on our part, but to trust in Christ's free gift of grace. Because church, there's nothing you can do to earn it. And there's nothing you have that can pay for it. And one of the exciting things about a day like today is it's all represented for us here at this table. But before you come, I need to remind you that although this gift is free, it is not cheap. It is not cheap. It costs God the death of his one and only son, a death we commemorate every time we partake of the Lord's table, a place where the ordinary takes on the miraculous for us spiritually. And though the bread and the wine don't, don't become flesh, they don't become blood, they don't change. But by the intervention of the Holy Spirit, they change us when we meet Jesus at his supper. A supper of the most ordinary things that bring us to the most extraordinary worship. A worship really that is the ultimate expression of the reality of God's presence in his son who we receive today. Because we receive it with, with all of our faculties, with, with all of our five senses. I think about it. Every time we, we smell the fresh bread and taste the wine, Every time we feel the touch of another's hand in the giving and receiving of the elements. Every time we see the table set and hear the words of institution. And receive this gift of God who comes so conspicuously near to his creation at this table. And a place where we're welcome, summoned to come forward as the poor to a benevolent giver. As a sick to a physician. As a sinful to a savior. As a spiritually dead to the father of life. Coming just as we are. But knowing Jesus loves us way too much to leave us unchanged. And so today Christ invites those who hear the Spirit's call to the table to commune with him who became one of us, sharing in our weakness and bearing our sins, so that in Jesus we see most clearly the sign of the self-giving love and mercy of a God that not just knows us, but makes himself known. Makes himself known clearly and conspicuously and life-changingly in his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of glory. His brothers and sisters, by the power of the Holy Spirit today, Christ is here. And he's not hidden. But if he is ever hidden, may we pray that he is only ever hidden in our hearts. We pray with him. God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise especially this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ. We come asking the Lord by the joy of his resurrection and an expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time. 
that eyes may be opened, that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. So remembering now your mighty acts of Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts. This meal may be for us a community. 